Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. James O'Loughlin is a comedian, television and radio host and MC. He began his career as a corporate lawyer, but changed course to become a criminal lawyer and comedian. Today, I'm talking with James about his latest book, Criminals. James, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Now, James, you've worked as a criminal lawyer, but your characters aren't the high-flying or gangster types that we might encounter in the news. Yours are more your everyday small-time crims running a bit closer to the ground. What's your attraction to those people a little lower down on the criminal spectrum? Well, I started off as a corporate lawyer and it wasn't for me. I didn't like it. And I moved to become a legal aid uh, duty solicitor initially at Blacktown Local Court. And I'd gone to a private school in Canberra, Sydney Uni, corporate law. And suddenly I I realised there was this whole group of people I, I didn't even know existed, people committing minor crimes, people lurching from one crisis to the other. And, and you know, my job as a legal aid solicitor was to try and band-aid up the latest crisis and maybe urge them often fruitlessly to tackle their underlying issue, which was often drug-related. And, and almost all criminals are like that. You know, of course, very few criminals in films and books are like that. They're often criminal masterminds with an underground cave and a gang. I I guess I got to know these people to an extent and and saw different types and different patterns. And it just seemed a natural place to start a a novel, Uh, not with people. I mean, I read a lot of really good novels about people who are a bit like a bit like me and something extraordinary happens to them that pushes them into crisis. I wanted to start with people who'd had a really difficult time, who were really troubled, who were in the pit and basically asked, could they climb out? And as we go along, find out how they got in the pit. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, I guess, uh, for a writer writing this kind of crime fiction, if I can call it crime fiction, because it doesn't really fall into that category. On one hand, you've captured these great earthy characters and found the humour in their characters and in their circumstances too, but there's another side to the story in Criminals, a story of unfortunate events, poor life choices, difficult socioeconomic upbringing. How do you balance those things without veering off into caricature? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I... I guess I had the opportunity to work with people like um, people like that in my time at Legal Aid for for five or six years, and actually to do a good job as a criminal lawyer, particularly when people plead guilty, and essentially your role is to turn them from number forty two on a magistrate's list into a person, and so you do have to find out a bit about them, about where they came from, about why they've committed the crimes that they have committed. And I I, I guess try and find out their motivations and humanise them. 
Um, so I did feel that I got to know a lot of clients reasonably well, albeit in a short time. And of course, some came back several times, so I got to know them even better, <laughs> which was kind of depressing. You know, I kept you out of jail last time, but I don't know about this time. And, and, and I, I think there's great interest in that. You know, if you start with someone who's in a really difficult situation, like one of the characters is is just going from break and enter to break and enter, which he uses to finance his heroin habit. One is kind of trapped in a house and bored and lonely. And, and I guess you, I'm hoping the reader will want to know two things, is why are they like that? What happened? And as we move the story forward, we also find out why that happened, um, how they got there. And then the other question I'm hoping readers will want to know the answer to is, can they get out? You know, can there be some sense of redemption? Of course, redemption is a, a theme in so many books, so many films, very much in crime novels. I mean, sometimes you just have a, a cop solving a crime, but often you have a cop with personal demons trying to, trying to you know, right their own wrongs internally as well. And, and, yeah, so they're the two questions I wanted readers to be interested in. How did they get like that and how do... How, can they save themselves? And I think when you mentioned the humour, that's a really important part of creating a bridge between a character is possibly very different from the reader and the reader. You know, if you can laugh along with, and, and I hope a lot of the time we're laughing along with the characters, not laughing at them. Sometimes they're in situations where we might laugh at them a bit, but, but if you can laugh along with them, then suddenly you're a bit more in their corner. Dean, withdrawal starts to kick in around midnight in the cell. And by the morning, I'm cramping and sweating, something fierce, and my guts feel horrible. It's a different legal aid this time, an older, grey-suited guy. He looks over it like he needs a holiday. He sparks up when I say I've got an alibi for the robbery, but when I say it's my dad, he loses interest. He tells me there's no point even applying for bail because I skipped last time. Why'd they arrest me, I ask. I done nothing. They say someone at the club identified you during the robbery. That's bullshit. Had a fucking balaclava on. The lawyer looks at me. I realise what I've said and backtrack. That's what it said on the news. How can you identify someone in a balaclava? A woman behind the bar says she went to school with you and recognised your voice. Get real. How's that going to hold up in court? I'm huddling over in my chair, feeling really crook in the guts now. I don't want to give you advice on that now, but yes, it's unusual. You're not going to get bail today, though. He looks at me, no doubt hoping I'll agree with him so he doesn't have to do his job and have a go. Fuck that. Let's have a crack. So let's talk about those characters. And the first one, his great character, Dean. He's a heroin addict. He's a bit happy-go-lucky, but always ready to sidestep responsibility whenever he can. But he's also smart in a streetwise kind of way, a bit of a problem solver, especially when he's in prison. Um, but he's also kind of sensitive and caring. But where did it go wrong for Dean? Each of my characters have a, a big thing in their mind, and Dean's is denial. Dean does not want to admit that moving from one break and enter to quickly cashing up and injecting heroin to another is a, is, is a problem. The line that sums him up best is when he's uh, a, a first arrested, the legal aid solicitor says, and look, you might want to address your, um, your heroin problem. And he goes, problem is more of a hobby than a problem. Um, whereas, of course, 
it has brought him undone and to the very to the very bottom. He grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He hardly knows his father. He kind of hates his father because of various ways in which his father has pushed him in the wrong direction. His, his mother found it hard to cope. And for many people that, that I met in my years at Legal Aid, heroin was a, 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 an escape from all that. It was a painkiller. It made you know, it makes him feel good for at least a couple of hours. And of course, the more you use it, the less that effect is, the less that everything's great now is and the more you need. But that that's why he uses it. And there's specific circumstances that pushed him to use it. He was, he was going to be a star footy player. He was going to get a contract with the Penrith Panthers. And then it all went wrong. And from that adversity, he didn't quite have the strength to to move to plan B. He went to plan C, which was heroin. Mary. Two days after the adventure of the flaming bin, just after 1pm, two gins down, there was a knock at the door. I quickly swept my pills into a plastic bag and hid them in the kitchen drawer. Outside were two police officers, including the one who'd taken my robbery statement. They asked to come in. They sat on the sofa and I noticed one looking at the red lipstick stain on the carpet. Would they realise it was a clue, a call in forensics, to match it to the one stolen from my first pharmacy, CSI Blacktown? Of course, they wanted to know why I'd taken the medication. I told them how unhappy and lonely I'd been. And it felt like I was both acting, playing the part of a poor, depressed, middle-aged woman crying out for help while also telling them the truth about the state of my life. Before long, they eased off stern and switched into caring social worker mode. I played along. Did you say professional help? What a good idea. Thank you. Half fake, half real tears arrived. They loved it. Let's talk about Mary. Now, Mary is educated. She's a school teacher or a former school teacher, but she's a bit argumentative. She's though thoughtful, but also an alcoholic on the verge of suicide. There's a nice quote there. She says, the scales that in the past have been weighted, often only by the merest of margins in favour of life, now tilted the other way. Now, she's taken up a, a life as a petty thief, steals some prescription medicine, which turns out to be for constipation. But Mary's also living a bit of a fantasy. Where did it go wrong for Mary? Yeah, well, it went wrong big time for Mary. We find out she used to be a school teacher and she used to love being a school teacher, but she hasn't taught for quite some years and she's been hiding away from the world. The only person she really communicates to in an open way is her daughter who's studying in England. And I don't want to say how she got where, where she did because it's quite a, a pivotal part and hopefully surprising part of the story. But she is in a really bad spot. And I actually met a lot of people like Mary when I was a legal aid solicitor, middle-class women, sometimes single, sometimes in unhappy marriages, often dependent on their husband for an income, who were suffering from depression and, and shoplifted stuff they didn't need. It was surprisingly common. And one theory was they were going to continue to do it until they got caught. And that would be, if you like, a cry for help that would help them address their underlying issues. It would force them to face the fact that they were unhappy and depressed and, 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 and miserable. Um, and everyone who worked at Legal Aid knew of that 
I don't want to dehumanise people by saying category, but there were certainly many people uh, like that. So she, I guess, is based on an amalgam of, of a lot of those women. And, and again, the two questions, how did she get like that and, and what do you do about it? When she starts shoplifting, it's the only thing that gives her a kick. You know, she's tried learning French. She's tried gardening. I think at one point she says, I've tried self-help and it doesn't help. But what does help is walking into a pharmacy, stealing a lipstick and being terrified of being caught. Sarah, being a cop was about enforcing rules, but what I most loved was the responsibility of making decisions. Do we question a suspect now or wait until we have more evidence? If someone is swearing and shouting in the street, should we arrest them for offensive language, call an ambulance for a mental health assessment or simply issue a caution? Will I get more out of a suspect by being friendly or stern through promises or threats? I never thought about the consequences of getting a decision wrong until it happened. Now I'm a friendly robot. Mary asks for a gin and tonic. I get it. The Davidsons leave a mess, I clean it. Barry asks for a drink on credit, I get Bruno. My favourite part of the job is venturing out from behind the bar to collect empty glasses and chip packets, straighten chairs and tables, and generally bring order to untidiness, perhaps because of its similarity to my old job, cleaning up the mess others have made. Plus, picking up used glasses helps me push back against my germ phobia. At home, I still wash my hands too much, but my OCD is much better than it was at school. Now, there's a third character of the three pivotal characters, Sarah. She's an OCD sufferer, plagued by anxiety and self-doubt. She works at the Blacktown Leeds Club, but she is a former police officer. Now, her favourite part of the job is getting out from behind the bar to collect beer glasses and empty chip packets. But she's also questioning the legal framework and her attitude to crime and justice comes up quite a bit. She wanted to be a good police officer and turns out to be quite the detective. But where did it go wrong for Sarah? Yeah, well, each of the three characters I said have something significant in terms of their outlook on life. Dean's in denial, Mary's depressed and Sarah is anxious. She always wanted to be a cop. She could have done anything, got a great, you know, HSC but she wanted to follow in her dad's footsteps and become a cop. She loved being a cop. She loved the responsibility, loved making decisions. She was in exactly the right place. And then, as happens to to so many cops, they're in a bad situation and maybe they make a bad judgment call and the ramifications of that are really significant, really severe. Uh, And that can happen, you know, there's lots of cases of, of great sympathy for cops, when we're all running away from trouble, they're running toward it. They're scared. They're, you know, I'd be scared in a lot of situations. They are someone with a knife or a domestic violence situation. And then every act they make will be forensically poured over by a committee looking for things where you didn't act perfectly. And at one point, Sarah didn't act perfectly and it freaked her out. Uh, and she realised the enormity of the decision-making that being a police officer requires and she couldn't do it anymore. Now she's developed an anxiety disorder and all she wants is to work in a job with no responsibility. Behind the bar is is perfect. 
people ask her for a midi and she gets them a midi. People ask them for a packet of chips, she gets them a packet of chips, anything more complex than that, she handles to a supervisor and it's all she can manage at the moment. I guess the big question for her in the story is, can she not return to, to exactly the worldview that she had, but she, can she incorporate this new, more cautious, anxious thoughts into her worldview and kind of then end up with a more, if you like, balanced, you know, not a gung-ho attitude to life, but a very balanced, nuanced one where she is able to take back some responsibility, but in a very thoughtful and balanced way. These three characters, Dean, Mary and Sarah, their paths cross in a situation in Blacktown Leagues Club, which sets off a disastrous chain of events. But what happens at the Blacktown Leagues Club that brings these three people together? Well, when Dean's arrested and he gets bail, he's prompted to change. Everyone prompts him to change. But, of course, they mean to go to rehab. And he thinks, I am going to change. Stuff this day-to-day existence. One big job and I'm going to piss off to Queensland with a lot of money. So he decides to, he's never done more than rob a house, you know, a few hundred bucks. One big job, rob the Blacktown Leagues Club, gets some replica shotguns, gets a partner, gets some balaclavas, in they go. Sarah is there behind the bar. Mary is there having a drink. And what I wanted to do was, I'm really interested in one, how one pivotal event can change everything and how each of us can impact the others. So, for example, Dean's robbery uh, motivates, if you like, inspires Mary to think, maybe I should try crime. That seemed pretty exciting. Here I am, almost the living dead. Um, That looks like a buzz, probably the only place I I can get it. And through the book, each of the three characters, they're quite separate, but they actually, at various times, significantly impact each other's life. So the robbery works initially. Mary is inspired to start her own minor life of crime. And Sarah, even though Dean was wearing a balaclava, knows there's something familiar about it. You know, when you, you know, we recognise faces, don't we? But we also recognise voices and we recognise body language and we recognise shapes. Um, when When I'm watching the footy and there's a, player whose back is to me I always know who it is just because people move in different ways so she's got this I've met that guy before and that kind of pushes her to go back to the things she loves investigating not with the police this time but just in her own time. Can I suggest that there's something a bit Shakespearean about criminals Uh, it brings to mind uh, you know as you like it all the world's a stage all the men and women merely players and it's as if the Blacktown Leagues Club is the stage. And here are these three characters who have really no control over their lives and just, I guess, open to the, the destiny that the Blacktown Leagues Club is going to bring to them. Yeah, there are some dominoes that fall. You're quite right. Um, all as a result of the robbery. And it pushes them all in very unexpected directions. Um Dean eventually <laughs> to prison, uh, Sarah to kind of confront her past and, and work out what actually happened on the night everything went wrong for her when she was a cop and maybe there's another layer to it that she didn't realise. And 
And Mary kind of pushing deeper into crime gets more and more determined to push it as far as it will go. So, yeah, all as a result of this one action. And, and in a way, I see the, I mean, you're quite right about this sense of destiny, but then one of the big questions of the book is, are each of the characters at some point able to assert their own humanity, their own will to survive, their own will to actually have a better life, to get out of the pit against these kind of forces of destiny pushing them in a in an opposite and, and worse direction. It's also quite amusing that all the legal representatives, the solicitors, the lawyers, the judges are all kind of bit players, nameless grey characters. <laughs> Why not develop those characters more? Yeah. Or is that the reality? Oh, look, we were, we were, uh, us legal aid lawyers were seen as, like, you go down to the cells in the morning, right, at Blackdown Local Court and, and see if anyone who'd been arrested overnight wanted bail. And some people would say yes, and some people would go, go oh, you know, legal aid, do you want representation this morning? No, I've got a real lawyer coming. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'd see people three or four times over the course of a couple of years, and they'd never remember you. And my favourite story about legal aid, a friend of mine who's still there sent me this. Uh, when you fill out a legal aid application, you have to, one of the questions is, where did you find out about legal aid? And someone wrote, I seen a flyer in the gutter. <laughs> and we all thought that kind of summed things up. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the lawyers for criminals are, are, are kind of, they're just like a, a tap, you know, a function. You turn on the tap, water comes out. You talk to your lawyer, hopefully they get you out of the cell. Um, yeah, so we, we probably, we try and see every client as a, as an individual with their own story. I, I don't know if they always see us that way. <laughs> There's something about criminals that makes me think of it as a, a bit of a morality tale in the sense that circumstances can make criminals of all of us and that this thing we call justice doesn't necessarily consider uh, human emotions or, or the conditions under which we live. Is, is that something that I think readers could take from here? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm so glad you... you pick that up. Um, we often, and I certainly used to before I worked at Legal Aid and even sometimes when I was there, think of us and them. So they're the criminals and we're the good guys and the police are in between protecting us and the justice system. But how many people have never committed a crime? How many people have never uh, driven when they might be a bit over the limit? If you swear in public, you're committing a crime. How many people have never pushed someone that's assault? Uh, how many people have maybe nicked a pen from work? That's that's not yours. You know that it's not yours. That's a crime. Obviously, you know, things like murder and importing drugs are away from almost all of us. Um, but there is a fine line between us and them. And in the, the right or perhaps the wrong circumstances, as you say, what would we do? And, and you know, all of my characters are decent people, I think, and they're all good-hearted, and I hope that the readers will come to come to be cheer, you know rooting for them um but they've all been through really difficult circumstances that people find out about as they journey through the book and and i guess you have to ask if if that happened to me would i end up like them would i be strong enough to be the upright citizen i am now when perhaps things are going fine we don't know 
Well, James, I really enjoyed the book and I want to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Ah, thank you. And thanks for all your interesting and insightful questions. I've been talking to James O'Loughlin about his book, Criminals. It's published by Echo and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.